With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Lama Tantrapa, and I want to thank you for your interest in the secrets of Qigong Masters. You are at the right place if you want to learn from some of the best experts in our field how to tap into the energy resources that will help you achieve greater vitality, personal power, improve the quality of your life, and experience self-realization. I encourage you to dive deeper into these teachings by exploring the additional resources provided by this and other amazing guests of our show. Please visit QigongMasters.com where you'll find a treasure trove of information and materials dedicated to empowering you to live your dreams. Today we're here uh, with Lama Tantrapa. He's been a longtime uh, teacher of mine and uh, martial arts coach, uh, self-development coach. And uh, we've been talking about the subject of cannabis a little bit here in Oregon because of all the changes we've recently had. And we thought it would be a really fun prompt to do a little interview on the subject of cannabis. And uh, Lama actually is usually the interviewer, so we're going to change the format a little bit and make him uh, be the interviewed and uh, see just uh, if there's any opinions or anything. There's been a lot of um, information on, on cannabis in the world of MMA recently, uh, having to do with the UFC and the Athletic Commission of Nevada and um, you know, MMA is different than martial arts, obviously. Uh, prize fighting is different than martial arts, but there's a lot of overlap, and um, there's probably a lot of contrast, a lot of spectrum of opinions around the subject of cannabis and around just using any substance for um, its curative abilities or even just for its benefit in, in the act of fighting or in the act of, of combat. Athletic performance. Athletic performance, just overall, <laughs> yeah, right, because we have so many athletes in this country who, you know, kind of on the hush-hush or possibly using it, but because of their position, they can't talk about it, and, you know, things are changing. Right. Well, uh, first of all, let me cut this in. I'm Lama Tantrapa. Thank you for joining us for another episode of The Secrets of Qigong Masters, and today I am being interviewed by my student and co-host, Thomas Pamelia. Thank you, Tom, for having me uh, on my show, and uh, uh, I'm really glad to be interviewed by you today. And now let's get back to the question. You know, this is really interesting. The funny thing about uh, using cannabis in the context of uh, mixed martial arts, uh, I think it would be really interesting uh, testing ground, because I personally don't have an experience in using cannabis and martial arts together. Intuitively, I have a sense that probably it would be painful for the for the user because when you're stoned, you probably have slower reaction time, so you're probably going to get punished a lot, or maybe you'll be just laughing your ass off. <laughs> so. It'll be just so funny to you, and and they will disarm your opponent, 
and so he won't be able to fight you. <laughs> That's a possibility too. I don't think there is much in the way of uh, athletic enhancement performance uh, that cannabis can provide because by and large in my experience I would probably say it slows you down, it makes it hard to think, and you kind of feel stoned, like you just can't operate. I know some people who drive cars and they even go to business meetings after having a toke or perhaps using cannabis in the way of tinctures or some other uh, things that they consume uh, orally. I'm not sure about uh, efficacy of that. They probably do it not to enhance performance, but to just ease anxiety or perhaps if they're nauseous, they just take it under control, so to speak. I don't know how much uh, business communications I would be able to do if I were on cannabis because it literally makes it hard to think. So somebody says something and I take a minute or two to respond, <laughs> that probably would throw a monkey wrench in the works. <laughs> well, there's, uh, there's, a, a, there's a lot of people that will uh, say those same things around the usage and you know, the context in which you use it has a lot to do with how it affects you. you know, at a party, it's going to be different than a business meeting, of course. And a UFC octagon is going to be different than... Uh, just at home wrestling with your friends. Obviously. So probably the Nevada Athletic Commission did this guy a favor. What's his name? Rick? Or Nick Diaz. Nick, yep. D Nick Diaz, who who got the ban because uh, if he was stoned and getting into octagon, he probably would have been punished. Well, there's there, that's really the crux of the uh, argument is that is the Athletic uh, Commission protecting fighters or are they kind of instigating um, a breach of personal rights. You know, should Nick Diaz ultimately be the one to make that decision for himself? You know, no. and also there's something to say. Is <laughs> no, he using cannabis? You're not supposed to make decisions for yourself when it comes to drugs in the context of athletic performance. You have very strict regulations as to what's allowed and what is not allowed. Mm -hmm. If you break regulations, you get well, the we're consequences. we're in a context now where people are questioning the actual regulation. They're saying, is there really a need for the athletic you know, commission to have this be part of their regimen of testing? The fighters are saying, this is something that we are using. You know, and there's also, some people well, like to make the argument, too, around two things. Am I using it while I'm in combat? You know, where I'll test positive for it there versus am I using it in a therapeutic context after my training and after my fights? You know, and that is there any difference in that? Oh, of course, yes. So, for example, if you're using cannabis for medical purposes, for example, you get beat up and you're hurting. And in order to be able to get back into a training regimen, you need to feel less pain. Yeah, maybe that's a medical reason. Uh, to, to use marijuana, but I would not be on the side of those folks who say you don't need to regulate the use of uh, potent drugs like this in the context of competition proper, because it creates unfair comp competition advantage, or perhaps it creates competition disadvantage. And so either way, we don't want to have that affecting the experience. Okay. So basically, uh, I'm happy to discuss that with anyone who thinks that uh, marijuana or cannabis needs to be not only legalized but also 
uh, become available to the athletes because I think that that would need to be uh, treated in the same way as steroids or performance um, enhancement drugs or you know cocaine or anything. Sure, sure. <laughs> well, it's it's a little petri dish, right? This this little these fighters are part of a. Uh, money-making scheme, they're prize fighters, and then they get licensed in various states to be able to, to you know, work in front of people, be a, be an entertainer, mm-hmm. and that, you know, various states have different regulations. Nevada happens to be one of the most popular places to fight, so they get the most kind of publicity when they make a ruling like this. Nick Diaz, for all intents and purposes, will not be fighting in the state of Nevada for the rest of his life. Five years, more or less, finishes his career there. Mm-hmm. So... You know what? What does that mean for him? Does that mean that he has to find another? There's probably going to be other avenues for him to work in. But um, sure. you know, I'm seeing a major, major trend of you know Ronda Rousey came out and said this is not something that needs to be a part of the UFC or the Athletic Commission's kind of venue for testing. It's part of why not? They feel that it's not an enhancement. It's not a degradation. The fighter themselves should be able to take responsibility for themselves, saying. I'm willing to go into the the ring or the octagon, you know, testing positive for this. I don't feel that it, it disadvantage puts me at risk, but also it doesn't make me superhuman either. You know, it doesn't. You can't say that you know, by using this substance, I'm going to go and have these, you know, facilitated abilities that are over and above a normal human. Um, you know? I disagree with that because we both know that. Um uh, medical marijuana is being used for pain treatment. Well, if you don't feel pain as much as the other guy, you have certain advantage in terms of maybe not suffering as much from strikes, blows, kicks, and, and pinches. <laughs> but on the other hand, you may also not tap out in time before you get damaged. Okay. So it's a major disadvantage for the player uh, to be high on uh, cannabis and also I think it's uh, a wrench in the works of the system in terms of being able to allow people to be more safe rather than less safe in octagon. I definitely think that there's uh, a mentality of of, uh, uniformity in the rules and also safety in the rules. You know, I, the only people that will be able to come forth and say, no, it doesn't affect your interface with pain in that way, are the people that are using it. You know, the, well, then why are they taking it? Well, if they're using it as a pain It's kind treatment. of an interesting thing. You know, <laughs> the people that use it, you know, and obviously there's going to be thousands of interpretations, but, you know, for, I'll just give a for instance. In the jiu-jitsu uh, communities, the people are using it for their practice. And... Um, Many of the people will say that uh, within my athletic endeavors, it, it allows me to think kind of laterally. It just allows me to, to be kind of in a, in a mode where thought processes aren't going on behind the scenes and that the focus of whatever I'm on can be, you know, possibly more um, condensed. You know, and, and that's kind of the way the context that they put it in, that when you imbibe before practice, that there's kind of a, a honing in of focus. By practicing and training. In training. Well, in training you practice. probably know the principle, I often use it in my education as well, uh, that you perform the way you train. 
So if you train under the influence of certain substances, and then you are not under that influence when it's time to perform, you won't be able to perform in the way that you train. In other words, your training is state-dependent. Your muscle memory is state-dependent. If you're in a different state of consciousness, you will perform differently. So I think it's not a valid argument at all. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, oh, it's okay to train or, or practice under the influence, but then I'm going to go into the octagon and I'm not going to be affected. Mm -hmm. Bullshit. Yeah, there's, <laughs> that's a great point. Um, a lot of people um, who you know, change their state of consciousness very frequently you know, will end up saying that I don't really need any substance to do it. It's more or less just a, an intention once you get down to it. And a lot of cannabis users will say that same thing, that, you know, after a while, you can intend to bring on that cannabis state. You don't need to imbibe right beforehand. It's something that you can elicit just through practice and through, through mm. the situation. Oh, and then you won't be texting positive for it either. Right. That gives you the best of both worlds. So maybe there's something to be said around that. But, sure. um, you know, that kind of comes back to the question of, is cannabis an entheogen? Can it be used in kind of the same context that a lot of these other entheogens are, you know, intending, using intention within your experience? And, you know, that's a whole other side of this conversation. We're kind of talking about MMA right now. Hmm. And the, the fact is that the, these, a lot of people that are in this area of practice, you know, whether it's just a hobby, whether it's something that you're using for physical gains, whatever it is, Overridingly, MMA and cannabis are starting to be more and more associated with each other. And I don't now, know how associated they can get with each other because really uh, there is very little benefit to imbibing in cannabis or any type of marijuana-based products to enhance your performance. As we just discussed a moment ago, the state of consciousness that you will be during practice uh, will not match the state of consciousness that you would need to have in performance time. Okay. So that you also will create a major discrepancy in your performance. And for therapeutic purposes, I understand that some MMA fighters who got banged up may need some kind of painkiller or uh, a way to manage their level of pain. But when it comes to training time and performance in mixed martial arts or any martial arts to that matter, I think it will really degrade the performance and will not serve a beneficial role that people perhaps hope that it would serve. So I would not encourage MMA fighters to get stoned and get an octagon. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Unless you want to get we're kind of, We're kind of treating it, you know, it's, it's definitely got a role in the therapeutic side of things for people to mend themselves, but probably going into combat is going to be something that you'd want to think twice about. When we're talking about therapeutic uses of marijuana, we can definitely see that it can help you if you are nauseous, it can help you if you are in pain, it perhaps help you feel less anxious, and also, if you just have incessant thought patterns in your, in your head, it may also help you get out of your head. And being stuck in a head is a major issue that a lot of people experience in this modern post-industrial age. Being stuck in a head also is not a healthy way to be, obviously. So 
if something can help you get out of your stuckness in the head, that means it's a, a positive thing. On the other hand, if you can also develop the ability to facilitate this new state of consciousness without uh, imbibing in uh, entheogens or cannabis, well, power to you. Then you really don't even need to uh, imbibe, you just simply flip a switch internally. Uh, I know that it works because I can do it. I know some people who've reported to me that they can do that as well. So it's just a matter of practice and perhaps uh, determination, like you said, yeah. intent. Habituating the, the state. And, um, you know, I'm finding too, there's probably a differentiation we want to make between the hobbyist, you know, someone who's using martial arts or MMA or, or some sub form of it for hobby and for the, for the self-development side of it. And then someone who's literally going into combat and, you know, a prize fighter, someone who's taking it on as a professional. Right, and I would really draw the line between MMA and traditional martial arts in context of personal development. Any serious teacher of martial arts I know would concur with me that it is an excellent personal development training tool. On the other hand, MMA is not really often used for personal development because well, first of all, if you're a prize fighter, your objectives are not personal development. The objective is to win the prize. And what does it mean? It means it often comes along with a sense of pride, which is the opposite of humility that other martial arts train and teach. Uh, it also comes with uh, the pursuit of a monetary reward. I'm not against the money, but again, many masters of martial arts are known for not striving to uh, make a buck off of their art. And sometimes they end up living poor. But uh, what I see is basically a, a major distinction in the objectives uh, that people pursue when they engage in traditional martial arts as opposed to mixed martial arts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a fantastic point to make in that the, the we have a lot of you know martial arts occurring and there's probably a re-ignition in the interest of traditional martial arts because of the explosion of MMA. Um, you know terms are being used in these events. Joe Rogan's a, a great announcer because he's you know he's got knowledge of these these base martial arts. You know he came from such and such background, Taekwondo background and you know a lot of these martial arts, you know, are have been kind of stemmed into competition, but there are still a lot of self-development uh, oriented martial arts. Yeah, I I watched a recent interview that uh, Joe Rogan had with an Aikido teacher. Basically, Joe proved to myself and to the rest of the world that he doesn't know a thing about Aikido. So that's one of the martial arts that uh, he has no clue about, and. Uh, I don't know about Taekwondo, uh, it's definitely one of the most external martial arts out there. Mm -hmm. uh, but when we go into the personal development realm, we become more and more interested by and large in internal processes, which are often associated with internal martial arts practice. And it's, I, I would be hard pressed to find 
a person who does Tai Chi, for example, or Bagua, or Shini, and would go into the MMA octagon and try to fight for a price. They would either lose sorely because Tai Chi training and Bagua training and other similar types of training often are completely opposite to what is needed in the MMA circle. Or, on the other hand, if they perform well, most likely they would not be using the techniques from the internal martial arts for two reasons. One, to make the techniques of internal martial arts functional, you really need to spend years and years training. By the time you get there, you lose interest in winning in mixed martial arts competitions. And on the other hand, a lot of people who get into internal martial arts have background in some external martial arts preceding the engagement in internal martial arts training. So most likely the person will default to that which is more basic and that they're more familiar with. That's a great point. Uh, you're using terminology here that might be a little bit new to people that are coming into the fold of MMA, some of these external arts, you call those external arts, competitive mm -hmm. martial arts. Um, can you maybe give us just a real fundamental understanding of the difference between an external art and an internal art? Sure. Well, by and large, the external martial arts, sometimes also referred to as hard martial arts, uh, are different from the internal, often referred to as soft martial arts. And the softness is hard, and hardness is both the physical manifestation of certain state of consciousness, as well as just the literally the level of tension that people experience in their bodies practicing. The line between internal and external martial arts is uh, uh, rather blurry. It's not always cut and dry, but traditionally uh, several martial arts are considered internal, such as Tai Chi Chuan, Bagua Zhan, Xinyi Chuan, and uh, there are also several uh, less known uh, martial arts, for example, Lik Chuan, Chidao can be considered kind of in between internal and external styles, but more on the internal side. Uh, Aikido can be considered more internal martial art. Uh, I would say Ichuan, uh, it's relatively young style, and that also uh, is more related to Shinyi. Uh, I would say it's an internal martial art. There are several others that basically focus on awareness of energy using the least amount of force to get the results done. Uh, and also uh, use more awareness of breathing and sometimes meditative practices than most of the external martial arts. I don't want to say that the external martial arts don't use meditation and breathing. That would be completely unfair to say that. Uh, even in Taekwondo, there is some attention given to breathing. Even in Muay Thai, there mm -hmm. is some attention given to breathing. Not as much to meditation in, in Taekwondo, but Muay Thai comes from Thailand, and uh, there's a, a fair amount of meditative tradition in that part of the world. So uh, Muay Thai fighters at least get exposed to some degree of meditation in their sure. daily lives. On the other hand, 
one of the cradles of external martial arts is also considered Shaolin Temple or Buddhist monastery. As a monastery, that's what people do there. They meditate. meditate. So uh, I don't want to say that external martial arts don't have any meditation involved or don't have any breathing or don't have any energy awareness. Of course, there are Shaolin styles of Qigong. There are styles of Qigong associated with some Korean styles and obviously a fair amount of energy awareness in Japanese styles of martial arts. Uh, there are also styles of martial arts that are neither uh, oriental nor occidental, like for example uh, Russian martial arts. Uh, I would say that's also somewhat between internal and external with sometimes more emphasis on internal practices such as again breathing, meditation, uh, entering certain states of consciousness, but also using uh, the body in a way that is uh, that allows you to achieve maximum results using the least amount of effort and energy. The practice of internal and external martial arts is not always the same because on the internal side there is more emphasis on slowing down sometimes often referred to as the meditation in motion. For example, Tai Chi often is perceived like a, a dynamic meditation kind of practice. On the other hand, in the external martial arts there is quite a bit of emphasis on speed. So, I would say probably internal martial artists would be more in alignment with the use of cannabis because they would be like, hmm, well it doesn't slow us down any more than we slow ourselves down. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's an interesting point, Lavo, because one overriding experience with cannabis is it completely fudges the perception of time. Huh. And, you know, I, I think people have various interpretations of it, but it slows time down, you know, majority of people. And um, that's extremely useful within training circumstances and meditation circumstances. So, uh, mm. you know, I've been very outspoken about the fact that you know as internal arts penetrates MMA in the greater world of of you know endeavor in that whether it's labeled as external or not that that people will arrive at that conclusion that cannabis can help cultivate this this inner cultivation this this inner you know attention to energy you know that's that's a facet of internal arts that's the first thing that people start interfacing with when they imbibe it's yeah. i feel uncomfortable because i'm having all these new phenomenon occur and i feel a lot of that is extremely energetic and so you know we have this kind of overlapping of people who are extremely athletic you know extremely capable people and then you have people who are you know more on the internal side we're, we're trying to cultivate ourselves you know elicit a new state of consciousness before we you know endeavor in this activity mm -hmm. that they're kind of coming together that they're both starting to see the usefulness of this. And, um, you spoke just recently about, um, you know, that martial art that's kind of like right in the middle. It's not, you know, Oriental, Chidao. it's not Westernized. Chidao is a major one. Sistema is a major uh, part of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's other arts that probably us Westerners are not familiar with that you might be familiar with. And we're starting to see on TV now that a lot of these fighters are coming from that part of the world. You know, these, these satellite countries of the Soviet Union that most Americans can't spell, let alone pronounce. These fighters are coming out and being extremely successful right out of the gate. 
And um, sure, just look at the Ukrainian uh, brothers, the Klitschko. Uh, they boxing. kicked everybody's ass, boxing both kickboxing and unboxing, for many, many years. I would say that the majority of people in America are still not familiar with these arts that are smack in between the internal and external ones. And as the representative of one of these arts, I can definitely say that the efficacy comes from ability to use your body in the most conscientious way so that you spend the least amount of energy and time to achieve the results you want to achieve. It's almost like bioengineering or biomechanical reverse engineering. You want to accomplish something? Now let's reverse engineer. How can you get there with the least amount of effort and time spent? You know what I mean? Sure. Now, most people don't take this approach. Instead, they take approach that they need to train hard and they need to get beefed up and they need to be speedy and they need to be able to take a lot of punishment without getting knocked out. Well, that's the external martial arts approach. So <laughs> what we do is we learn how to develop greater fitness, how to have great balance, and also how to use this approach to peak performance, which literally is about achieving maximum results by using the least amount of time, energy, and effort. And I think any martial artist, any artist of any sort, any human being of any sort would be able to benefit from this approach to life. And obviously a mixed martial artist would be able to benefit a great deal because they get punished for not performing well. And there is a reward if they do perform well. Mm -hmm. So basically anybody who is put in the hot seat and you really have to prove or disprove how well you function would be hot pressed to function well. Well, so let's see what helps you function well without violating uh, the rules of the game. So, for example, if there are some uh, performance drugs that make you speedier, that doesn't mean that you should take them. Yeah, maybe methamphetamines uh, can make you really fast, but you shouldn't be taking those because, well, first of all, it's unfair, and secondly, you will be ruining your health. Uh, for example, if you feel like there are certain substances that can help you during the training time before you go into performance time, it may be fair to use those unless, again, they are outlawed, let's say, like steroids or human growth hormones. Well, we all have human growth hormones, so there are ways to kind of facilitate the production of more of human growth hormone internally. Mm -hmm. And there are uh, basically a lot of uh, internal stimulation practices, like in Qigong, uh, that would allow people to achieve that without resorting to taking drugs externally. Okay. Well, that's an interesting statement to make that I think will pique a lot of people's curiosities. You know, they don't know about Qigong or they don't know about these personal practices that can be used for very specific and yet possibly, you know, very, 
at, at surface level, very bizarre, you know, ways to interface with your body, you know. And, hmm. um, well, if something that you do with your body, whether it's breathing, whether it's the way you stand, the way you move, the way you think, the way you look at things, affects the way that you produce uh, growth hormones, testosterone, uh, and other hormones in your system, improve your metabolism, or perhaps uh, increase your ability to utilize greater percentage of your muscle fibers, because most people don't really use the muscle fibers fully. Just like we talk about, most humans use only a small percentage of the brain capacity. Well, the same applies to other parts of the body. So, for example, I have a methodology for training people to utilize higher percentage of muscle fibers of the existing muscles. So you don't have to bulk up. You just need to use what you've got more efficiently. Use what you've got more efficiently. That's an interesting statement. And, um, you know, just in my little bit of experience kind of delving in external arts versus internal arts, one thing that occurred to me is that if you work with the internal arts of, of any kind, that it allows you to understand that there's an integrated way of living, that you can take the principles from your art and apply them to the rest of your life, and that that is one kind of facet of a good internal art, is that it's extremely integrated, that it can be used in, in an integrated fashion. Uh, is there anything you can say along that? Do you feel that, you know, within the realm of prize fighting, is there a benefit there? Well, there's definitely benefit to living an integrated lifestyle, and integrating those values and those principles that we develop through our training. So, for example, if we value being centered, what does it mean to be centered? Well, we can say it's just, it just means that you can be centered in your body and somebody pushes you, you don't get pushed over. You just pivot, maintaining the alignment of your center, the center of your body, like the Tai Chi pole, and just simply spin off whatever energy is being projected at you. Now, that also is a physical, maybe kinesthetic manifestation of a certain state of consciousness. So you're not only centered physically, you're also centered emotionally and mentally. That's what we refer to as a state of equanimity. In state of equanimity, you don't take things personally, you don't react too easily. You are responsive instead of being reactive. And that can be very effective, not only in terms of martial arts training, but also business, communications, interpersonal relationships, politics. Essentially, wherever you go, you will benefit from being responsive rather than reactive. The state of equanimity also means that you have certain values in your value system, your belief system, that do not polarize uh, the whole world into good and bad, or black and white. And instead, you accept things in balance. Okay. That also physiologically manifests as the state of equipoise. So when you have mental balance, you also will be balanced physically. In other words, you distribute weight more evenly between the right and the left feet. When you walk, you don't wobble. When you stand on one foot, you're very stable. And also what happens with the equipoise is the distribution of weight on the bone structure 
of the skeleton instead of using muscles, mm -hmm. which means the bones perform the job with ease. They don't have to work hard to support the body, unlike the muscles that have to burn calories. And, of course, they get overworked and then they get tired and sore and also get chronic tension, which leads to energy blockages, which create havoc in a person's health. So if we develop equipoise, we actually improve our health tremendously. That also allows the energy to flow more freely through the entire system, which allows us to perceive the flow of energy better. That also teaches us how to feel the flow. And then the job of the internal martial arts is to basically educate the practitioner how to be in the flow. Well, how can you be in the flow if you don't feel the flow? So you need to be able to feel the flow, which, again, happens when you experience that equipoise, which is a somatic manifestation of state of equanimity. Now, when you go into martial arts competition, it's hard to maintain state of equanimity because you want to win, you don't want to lose. So there is the push-pull, there is attachment and aversion. Now, the best of the martial artists would say, if winning or losing doesn't matter. I'm just going into this experience and I'm going to survive or not. So, with that, no attachment to outcome, in other words? Exactly. Okay. So, with that attitude, then they may experience more equanimity, but that also may not contribute to adrenaline production. Adrenaline obviously makes you more agitated but perhaps also increase the reaction speed. And adrenaline may affect your physiological functioning, so you don't want to run on adrenaline for an extended period of time. You don't want to have a chronic adrenaline production going over board, uh, because well, that leads to adrenal fatigue. Okay. On the other hand, if you are in a tough situation, it's important to have some degree of adrenaline in your system because it will boost your response time and it will help you function more effectively. Same with about testosterone. Having too much testosterone will screw up your relationships, will make you too obnoxious and aggressive and people will not like you. Mm -hmm. And so basically people with too much testosterone, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the old movie, uh, The Raging Bull okay. with uh, Robert De Niro. Okay. <laughs> he was a major asshole in his daily life, even though he was a good boxer. So this same applies to everything. Finding the balance, finding the sweet spot, so to say, mm -hmm. allows you to well, be effective in your performance, but also be able to chill out when you don't need to perform at peak. That's a great point. You used a word just now, uh, equanimity. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought that was very interesting because overridingly humans will attest to the feeling of equanimity within, within themselves when they imbibe cannabis. Mm -hmm. you know, that, that, it, that it just allows you to feel equanimity. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's, there's uh, another word that we use very prevalently in the internal arts world called embodiment. You know, there's kind of a contrast that someone can be very embodied versus someone who's very disembodied. Right. And um, I didn't have, yeah, or disassociativeness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I didn't have that understanding early on. Um, 
Later, I learned that the majority of our culture here in the United States, Western culture by and large, are walking around uh, with a severe disembodiment. That's you know? what I was talking about when I mentioned being stuck in the head. There's something to be said about uh, what happens to people when they imbibe. That there's, you know, possibly a either a coming out of the head or a re-entering of the body that occurs. And you know, there's different strains and different modalities that affect this, of course. And the human the human experience is very subjective. Mm -hmm. But overriding, there's songs that are, that are attributed to this. You feel more embodied. You feel more equanimity. And mm -hmm. so, um, you know, we come back to the, the, the practice side of it, you know, like people integrating this uh, plant into a personal practice or into a personal development protocol that, you know, that they can, you know, be functioning in the society where you have to be extremely quick, you have to be very acute up here, you have to be, um, you know, functioning with everybody else in the office from the neck up. But then when you get home, you literally don't want to be that person anymore. You want to you know, use your practice to drop down into the body. And I think that in our society, people are discovering cannabis for this very reason. Yeah, I totally agree with that, uh, that people who discover cannabis and other substances for exactly this reason. As a matter of fact, uh, probably the most widely used substance is caffeine. Why? Because people need to pick themselves up in the morning and also in the afternoon. What happens is that each and every one of us human beings goes uh, through certain cycles of energy. There are circadian cycles that are associated with day and night. So at night we sleep or at least feel more relaxed and, and more likely to uh, go to sleep if the opportunities arise. Yeah. And also during the day, there is a certain peak of energy. Okay. Now, there are also so-called ultradian cycles that are much shorter in span. Instead of 24 hours, they only cover a span of about 90 minutes, which means every 45-minute interval, there is a shift between the peak of activity and more passive uh, or less energy swing. And what happens is that these ultradian cycles overlap the circadian cycles. So the circadian cycle goes up, but there are also peaks and valleys in that in that upward in strike. that upward uh, movement. And then there is a, a certain uh, point in time, usually around lunchtime, when people sometimes say, "Oh, I'm feeling so groggy." Maybe they ate something that they <laughs> feel groggy after eating. Or maybe it's just their natural ultradian cycle overlapping the circadian cycle. So what happens then is the people need to pick themselves up. So in the morning, the circadian cycle is just beginning to rise. Well, they need to really get up and go. So what do they do? They pick themselves up with coffee. Okay. Or some other substances. Some people snort cocaine. Some people... A lot of people use cannabis in the morning right away when they wake up. Some do. And then uh, at a certain point in time during the day, they may also feel uh, kind of tired or sleepy. Instead of taking a nap, which is the most natural option, they're called siesta. Yeah. People drink tea, drink coffee, or pick themselves up with uh, some additional uh, uh, 
dose of cocaine or methamphetamines or whatever else they use. And then in the evening, when the work day is over, it's time to relax. They often wound themselves up so tight they have a hard time relaxing. So what do they do? Well, they basically have to take downers, whether it's alcohol or marijuana or some other downers, or they have a hard time going to sleep, so they take barbiturates. In other words, they artificially manipulate the natural flow of the biorhythms. Okay. So I'm not a proponent of doing that. What I am a proponent of is using the natural flow of things and understanding how biorhythms work, observing how they work in our own bodies, and then taking advantage of those times in, during the day when we have the peak of energy in order to perform our most important functions or have uh, the most important events in our day schedule on those times when we have peak of energy and when we have the, the valley between the peaks mm -hmm. those are great times to relax recuperate that's also the time during the day when we produce more growth hormone so basically we can restore our health and those points in time are also excellent for meditation practice As you know I'm not a big proponent of sitting down for an hour or two meditating, but rather I suggest to break meditation practice into smaller increments and just meditate for 10-15 minutes in several periods of time during the day. Mm -hmm. Proper uh, timing would be during those valleys between the peaks. Okay. When energy wanes, then you naturally feel a little bit groggy or perhaps just more relaxed, so you just meditate. Even if you don't have to sit down in a lotus position to meditate, you just uh, give yourself a break. That will recharge your energy a lot better than any substance that I know. It will also give you uh, reinforcement for these biorhythms to continue happening in a natural fashion. And when it's time to perform, for example, you can also remember what it was like to have high energy. So even if you are not at the peak level of biorhythm at the moment, well at least you can switch to that state of consciousness which will somatically manifest as a more alert and more energetic you know, physical state. This is a, a principle of internal arts that you know people may be familiar with if they're following along, but this is probably pretty new information to people that are, are working strictly in the external arts world. Right. There's more push right now with uh, the topic of cannabis around mm -hmm. you know veterans, they're coming home with different different uh, severe problems. They're, uh, we're finding that veterans are taking their own lives at a higher rate than they're dying on our combat fields. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, veterans, you know, to some degree, they suffer the same traumatic head injuries that athletes do you know we have various sports that are you know they're sustaining a, a higher margin of, of brain injuries just sure. due to the way that they're they're played and um and mixed martial arts is right on top of that and, and of course the <laughs> ufc is you know there's discussions around the size of the gloves there's discussions around you know the amount of punishment that these guys take and boxing of course is always brought into the discussion as compares to mma and 
Um, you know, we've kind of talked about the area, can it help you as a, as a performance substance? Can it help you as a therapeutic substance? But what about when your career maybe is coming to the end or maybe we've already retired? Uh, is there a place, do you think, for cannabis for those people, people that are maybe going to see some long-term ailments from a lifetime of external arts? Well, you're absolutely right that um, both uh, military veterans as well as uh, veterans of the different types of sports, including martial arts, end up banged up and often in ill health as a result of excessive exposure to injuries or uh, head traumas and things like that. Those who may not be physically injured may also be injured emotionally or mentally, uh, have PTSD or, or other issues that, like you said, often lead to uh, suicide and, uh, or otherwise the life of uh, depression or anxiety or combination thereof. One of the best, most effective ways that I always recommend and practice and that helped me with my own PTSD, which I had temporarily uh, when I came back from the military service myself, is the practice of meditation. Not all meditation practices are born equal. So the specific type of meditation that I'm referring to is the practice of uh, lucid daydreaming meditation, where you literally focus your attention on the content of your daydreams that happen when you're sitting or standing and meditating which is kind of opposite of what most meditation teachers tend to teach. They often say, don't pay attention to the content of your dreaming, just notice that it's happening and kind of disregard it. Well, the funny thing is that trying to disregard or deny or suppress even the process of daydreaming is not an effective approach because our minds naturally have tendency to dream. As a matter of fact, whenever you have any thought, whether it's a thought about the past, or a thought about what may happen in the future, or even a thought about the present time. It's often a thought about something that may be happening elsewhere rather than here and now. Or a thought about what is the other person thinking. Yeah. Or a thought about what's happening on the big scheme of things, in the big picture. Or perhaps on the opposite end of scale, uh, what's happening on microscopic level. Either way, all these thoughts are pure daydreams. Now, we can literally equate thinking to daydreaming, in which case we would say whenever we think, we daydream. Okay, that's what often happens in the process of meditation. If we try to suppress the flow of daydreaming in the meditation practice, we often end up just struggling against the flow which is the opposite of being in the flow, mm -hmm. which literally just creates a miserable experience or often people just quit meditation practice because they feel like they can't do it or they feel that they're doing it wrong or they feel inadequate because they failed to perform uh, uh, the task that was given to them by the meditation teacher. Instead of that, I actually teach how to become a connoisseur of the daydream that happens in your mind when you sit and meditate or stand and meditate. I often like standing meditation even more. And when you do that, 
remind yourself that it's a dream. And then you become lucid. You become awake in the dream. Now, this type of meditation practice allows you to take charge of your dreams and learn how to be responsive to anything that happens in your mind instead of being reactive to it. Instead of trying to negate it or go into denial or just try to escape from it, we actually face it, which is the most effective way to deal with anything scary or any type of nightmare of a daydream people dream up for themselves, yes. which is exactly what we refer to as anxiety and depression and PTSD. So what I do then is to basically practice and teach how to become particularly skillful in the dream world that you dream up in your consciousness while you are practicing this practice of lucid daydreaming. And when you develop this lucidity and skillfulness in terms of relating to different aspects of your dream in the most effective and most harmonious way, that begins to translate into your daily life. You start relating to everything and everyone around you also in a more harmonious, more skillful way, which is in Buddhism referred to as upaya, the skillful means. It also translates into physicality. You literally start feeling greater sense of harmony. Instead of feeling like you're falling apart, you actually feel more together. Now, when you feel more together, you by and large feel greater sense of well-being and wellness. You also have greater access to the energetic resources that you would be able to put to good use. And you don't feel so tired or so frustrated or so afraid so you can function a lot better in whatever situations your life presents to you. Mm -hmm. So essentially, this is my answer to both PTSD and other types of um, psychological injury that people experience both in martial arts and uh, in military service. That's excellent. You uh, brought up some um, practices that you teach within your art, uh, meditative practices. In my experience, you're using some of these, and you know, in the cannabis world, people are very quick to bring up, you know, what happens to new users. You know, they're they're introduced to something at a party or in a in a social setting or something, and they they perhaps smoke it for the first time. And what is sometimes the the first thing that happens? They they put a they put a very prevalent term paranoia hmm. onto the experience. And yeah. uh, in my uh, practice of meditation. Uh, I've not had to deal with any sense of paranoia because of that internal switching mechanism that, that is available to me through my lucid daydreaming practice. And, uh, and possibly because of the experiences that I've had well under the influence of cannabis too. It's just, mm -hmm. it's diversified. So it's very hard for me to feel out of context and, um, in our society, people use this term paranoia, and they very rarely use the opposite term of paranoia, it's, you know, or just euphoria. You know, it's like euphoria can be a consequence of using cannabis as well. But we don't use that. We don't have that context. It's always like, I feel a little bad. This is paranoia. Um, what, what can be said around that? And using meditation or using internal arts to... Uh, elicit an internal change in yourself 
in any circumstance. You know, that, that if you're, maybe there's another medication that a doctor prescribed to you, you say you need to take this for this need, and it brings on a state that you don't find beneficial. It doesn't have to be cannabis that we're talking about. It could be anything. It could be alcohol for that for that matter. You know? I've never heard any doctors prescribing alcohol. Well, yeah, that, that'd be an interesting thing, but uh, we'd have to go back a hundred years or so. Uh, but you know, if you find that the alcohol is affecting you in a way that you don't like, you're in a social setting that doesn't suit you, perhaps. That, that right. you know, I can certainly say that about myself, that I don't imbibe in alcohol much because it doesn't serve me well. I feel stupid and debilitated by alcohol. So that's probably a bad example. Alcohol, by and large, has been known to kind of uh, debilitate our internal switches that we've cultivated through meditation and through all these. However, I also understand why people drink alcohol if they're frustrated or, like you said, paranoid. A bit of uh, alcohol probably will cool down a little bit or, or suppress that exactly. So probably that's the way, one of the reasons why people also uh, take cannabis in a variety of forms is because they try to suppress those feelings that they don't want to feel. That's, that's an interesting thing. And there's also another context that I wanted to bring up. It's uh, something that is talked about in the psychological world, I'm sure, and maybe not so prevalent in the martial arts world, is that is of escapism. That you're using a substance or using a modality. It doesn't have to be a substance. You'd be using a hobby, you know, to escape. Sure. Sex and, or uh, some people uh, game, uh, computer gaming. Yep. Uh, absolutely. Escapism. Um, I think practice of martial arts may be a form of escapism as well. For some people, sure. Yeah, for some people. Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm not a big fan of escapism personally. I understand the need for it that some people have, and I can't say that I've never done it myself, but uh, I definitely do not think that this is healthy to indulge in escapism. I would say if you are under pressure, the best way to deal with it is to learn how to relax under pressure. It's exactly what I teach in practice, even if in context of martial arts. Somebody is punching you. If you tense up, you only become a, a better target sure. for the punching uh, person to punch out. If the person grabs you and you tense up, you become a better target to hold on to, as opposed to a wiggly target or an elusive target that is hard to aim at, is hard to hold on to. Uh, if you are not in a martial arts situation, but for example, you are. Uh, let's say in, in combat, in military. If you tense up, you again become a better target. You also are not as quick. You, you don't think as quickly on your feet. You may also not be able to perceive situation thoroughly. Okay. So you basically develop kind of a tunnel vision often. So this identification with tunnel vision, with uh, one's uh, narrow field of perception, is something that is ubiquitous in many, many situations uh, that people experience pressure under. So instead of becoming more tense and develop narrow field of vision under pressure, we learn how to relax and develop broader field of vision, which only serves us better in terms of our ability to handle a situation more gracefully and powerfully.
so uh, yeah i would say that uh, escapism is something that people do when they don't have access to the tools that i offer them yeah living living an integrated lifestyle is the opposite of living an escapist lifestyle it literally is yeah. it could be seen as that and um in the western world here we have you know times where we're on and then we're times when we're off and a lot of people lead various different identities within their lifestyle and um you know integrated living is is kind of the opposite of that where you're you're always maintaining a uh, um a protocol for you know, a value system applies to all facets of your activity there's not a special special thing for this and a special thing for that and compartmentalizing mm -hmm. and um you know this kind of leads me to another question within you know your internal arts practice I believe there's a principle of remembering that you can use certain states of consciousness so you can elicit a certain state of consciousness uh, through habit and through practice and then remember that state or to switch it on so to speak when you see a need for it or when you can uh, make use of it mm -hmm. and uh, I wanted to bring up cannabis in that context or maybe even any entheogen you know if you use if mushrooms or salvia is something that is that person's modality that they could use the entheogen to elicit a state of consciousness and then recall it or remember it when they don't have that substance in them and, and is there anything to be said around that well that's a really good question uh, the practice of remembrance is really at least in my tradition is dedicated to reminding myself that i'm dreaming during the dream that we call daily life in other words most people never even consider the experience of living daily life as a dream. Well, this is exactly what we refer to as spiritual awakening. You become enlightened when you awaken in this dream called daily life. It's very similar to awakening in a dream at night and becoming lucid. Now, in order to learn how to do that, we have the practice of remembrance, which essentially uses a very simple understanding that you will experience often more things that you do during the day in your dreams at night if you consistently do those things during the day so for example if you drive a car during the day it's likely that you will have a dream about driving a car at night for example if you practice martial arts during the day it's likely that you will have a dream about doing that at night as well if you remind yourself during the day that you're dreaming, that everything is made of energy, and you can relate to everyone and everything as an energy being, as a dream character that you dreamed up, and you identify yourself not only with your personal perspective, but also with the perspective of all the other dream characters that essentially just reflect back to you certain aspects of consciousness that you don't identify with, usually, so much so that they appear to be as separate entities in your dream and then integrate it so that you identify with the whole world of the dream and the creator of the dream at the same time. The dreamer, so you're not only the creature in the dream, you're actually the creator of your dream. If you step into that identity, now that's the really powerful way to be. And also the royal road 
to developing much greater creativity because what can be more creative than creating the entire world of the dream in your dreaming practice? Well, what happens is that we simply practice remembrance and then we remind ourselves about certain states of consciousness that were particularly helpful. So, for example, the state of equanimity we were talking about. It's a very helpful state of consciousness. We remind ourselves about it, and the more we do that, the more likely we will experience equanimity in our lives. Uh, I agree that perhaps some people who take cannabis or other antigens uh, may experience equanimity or other helpful states. Sometimes people report that they take mushrooms or some other antigens and they actually experience awakening. Um, salvia divinorum, uh, actually a legal substance in the United States, is famous for that. So you, you take salvia divinorum in one way or another, usually people smoke it, and you often experience, wow, I'm dreaming right now, but I'm totally awakened. Well, so this is a perfect example of a, a kind of a miniature awakening, miniature enlightenment in a sense then if you give yourself a certain uh, clue how to remember this state, then you'll be able to get back into it, maybe even without any salvia or any other antigens. You just simply know how to turn your state of consciousness, fine-tune it into this particular frequency. That's a great answer. People that are trying to fine-tune their internal experiences, I feel, are few and far between. You know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of a cultural awakening that we're going through. People that, you know, connect the idea that their thoughts lead to emotions and, and just, you know, it's things like that. You know, with the use of cannabis, people uh, can use it unconsciously. They can use any entheogen unconsciously as a party favor. They have a great experience. You know, you can, you can interface with these things in any way you want. The human experience is extremely diversified in that way. Um, I've found in my personal experience that intention plays a major part uh, in the experience with, with cannabis or any entheogen. And I've found that that equates also to my internal world. You know, I intend, you know, having the intent that to be awake within my dream, to mm. intend that I see others as a facet of myself, you know, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. And that when you sit down to use your medium, whether it's salvia or mushrooms or cannabis, that there's a little process that you would go through to make that recall, remembering I am living a dream right here and right now, and that I would like to go deeper into it, or whatever your particular ceremony is, you know, to have a specific ceremony around it. And I think that this is an interesting maturation process. So cannabis is very prevalently used in our society, but very rarely is it compared to mushrooms, and very rarely is it compared to other entheogens. Mm. I think that's going to change. I think that that will, people's minds will kind of, you know, we talk about marijuana as a gateway drug. Mm. We're kind of coming full circle and saying, yeah, yeah, it is. It's a gateway entheogen. You know, people use it as a companion in theogen to other things. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, what you just spoke of in terms of your, your internal processes and, you know, inciting a certain state of mind, but mm-hmm. then also recalling that state of mind. Right. And that, you know, these 
these certain plants, once you've kind of uh, used them and have a certain level of experience with them, that you can elicit any state of mind you want to. There doesn't need to be any hard structures around, you know, this cannabis does this and this cannabis does that, that we can literally intend the experience that we're looking for from it. And uh, that, I feel, very much parallels the meditative communities. You know, you very much have a self-empowered presence in this. It's like, I will sit down and elicit the state that I wish to have. I really think that um, the practice of uh, meditation and energy arts, such as Qigong, as well as internal martial arts, uh, would be an excellent gateway drug, so to speak. (laughs) Much better than pot or whatever you call it. I also do not condone the the use of uh, federally restricted drugs, Um, you know, the Class A substances, such as uh, anything from cocaine to... Uh, opium to uh, LSD and, and the like. If people like to imbibe in those, well, I'm not going to stop them, but certainly I'm not going to be the one promoting them. What I would say about it is that we already have the chemistry within ourselves. Most of us have access to it on an unconscious level, and some of us learn how to develop it consciously. So we have the most amazing apothecary within our own bodies. Most of the entheogens and uh, other mind-altering substances that we talked about work because we have corresponding receptors. Why would we have these receptors in our bodies in the first place? Because we have the endogenously produced substances that work with those receptors. Anything from serotonin to endorphins, you name it. Now, what happens is that some people live lifestyles that inhibit the production of serotonin or inhibit the production of uh, other hormones. So that basically leaves them without the access to the resources that their bodies would need in order to feel well or in order to function well. So then they resort to adding something to the composition of their internal chemistry from without. If they need to do that, I'm not going to stop them. I don't prescribe any of the substances myself, and nor do I condone the use of them, but I can certainly see that if people have certain issues with their internal chemistry, well, they may need to do something about it. If they ask me what they could do about it, I would say there are certain practices that I could introduce you to that could move the needle. If it doesn't move the needle enough, great. If it doesn't move it enough, well, don't get stuck in the one paradigm of thinking that I offer. Explore others. So in other words, I don't have the license and truth, but I definitely know what works for me. And for many thousands of people that I've worked with over the course of my career so far. And so what I would encourage people to do is to learn how to tap into their internal resources first and foremost. Now, if there are still needs for some additional medicinal use of uh, some substances, or perhaps to use it for the spiritual purposes in ceremonial fashion like you just described, let's see if it can be done at least on a temporary basis. So you don't have to 
use this particular substance for the rest of your life. Otherwise, it's another form of dependence. Sure. So, you can say, well, how about cheese? If you eat cheese every day, is it the form of dependence? I would say yes. I'm in that category. That's a great example for me. Bacon and cheese. Trying to get over so, that. So we don't have to get stuck in any paradigm of thinking, in any paradigm of, of activity. We learn how to be free. And the sense of freedom that we experience as a result of creating and following this integrated lifestyle is unparalleled. And that's essentially what I support and promote. No, that's excellent. That's excellent. I think that this interview has been really, really fun and probably covered some interesting things for a lot of people. I'd like to make it a, a part, a, a one of a part series if we can. And uh, one reason for that is, you know, very early on in this interview, you kind of attested to being maybe on the more inexperienced side with cannabis. That your your personal experience possibly isn't isn't that. Isn't yeah, that I don't have a lot of experience with cannabis. And that. You know, within your mostly secondhand, <laughs> mostly secondhand. There, well, that's fine. I think a lot of people could probably say that same thing. Um, you know, one major facet of your own art, the, the chadao, is that you test, you test, and you test. You don't take anything for granted. You don't assume anything. You put it to test. Yeah. And uh, I'd like to welcome you to that same principle with this and. Uh, maybe have some of these same questions come up after you've had some time uh, to experience uh, firsthand and you know, see if there's any contrast in your answers and see if there's any new uh, information you'd bring forth. I don't know that there's any other Qigong masters willing to endeavor in this type of the question and answer before and after uh, or even be comfortable with saying, I'm going to go ahead and use some cannabis and then report back. You know that this we're still going through some cultural changes. Right? We That's, are, <laughs> yeah. And in you, you just got done saying you don't support using any of the Class A federally scheduled drugs. Well, gosh darn it, cannabis actually is right in that right in that list, and that's what we're trying to change. Of course, here in the state. <laughs> We've, we've kind of pushed forward. So we're going to have to break the federal law in order to experiment a little bit. But there's a, millions of people out there breaking the federal law right now, experimenting. Well, I can promise that I'm going to engage in experimentation that requires breaking the federal laws. But I'm not going to stop anybody from doing that. Yeah. And so that's something that uh, I also want our listeners and viewers to keep in mind. And uh, I want to thank you, Tom, for a great interview. It was very thought-provoking, and uh, uh, we covered a lot of controversial subjects. We did. Thank you, Lama. <laughs> Until next time. Thank you. You have finished another episode of the talk show, The Secrets of Qigong Masters, that brings to you some of the top experts in Qigong, meditation, healing, and martial arts. Now, I invite you to visit qigongmasters.com and dive deeper into the teachings of our amazing guests by downloading their multimedia products and becoming a member of our international community of like-minded people. This show is also brought to you by Academy of Chidao, offering qigong coaching programs that integrate the ancient energy arts with the modern methodology of coaching. If you struggle with chronic pain, suffer from too much stress, want to boost your performance, or seek spiritual awakening, please go to qigongcoaching.com. There, you can receive top-notch coaching as well as professional training to become a certified Qigong coach yourself. That's right, if you're dreaming of making a decent living, doing what you love, 
and making a difference in the lives of many people worldwide. Check out our programs that will help you transform your interest in energy arts into living your life in the flood. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.